Are you curious about what it takes to build a group practice? Or maybe you're already a few practices in and you want to learn what you need to do to ensure your success. Make a point to join us in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th through April 1st for our pinnacle event called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. This event is built to bring you the in-depth educational resources to help you create success at this next phase of your journey. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the event itself and to see an overview of the agenda. We're limiting the event to 75 people and we expect it to sell out. So please register soon. We hope to see you in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th for Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode seven of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. We're going to talk banking strategy today and specifically finding your last lender before private equity. What does that all mean? It means that we're bringing Dr. Debt behind the microphone. That's right, my partner DeWalker Sinha is gonna be joining me again today to discuss banking. I know you're gonna wanna hear what all he has to say. So get your pad and pen ready and brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator Podcast is on the air. Well, hello everyone and welcome to banking strategy, finding your last lender before private equity. And there's only one man who could slice and dice a topic like this, my partner, DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. You bet. This is going to be fun. This is going to be an episode that we have been, uh, frankly, looking forward to recording for quite some time now. Um, I think you're going to provide a lot of insights into banking relationships We're going to go through and define some terms and terminology, uh, and we're going to slice and dice things like retail lending, middle market, lower middle market banking, what all that means. And then we're going to go through things like guidance line, credit facility, and debt recapitalization. There are going to be a lot of heady terms (laughs) in this episode today, but I think it's going to be immensely valuable in the way our audience thinks about a borrowing relationship and the institution that they're uh, working with for the foreseeable future. So, DeWalker, let's take it maybe from the top and um, let's, maybe let's just do a little bit of compare and contrast. How about that? Well, uh, I'll let you take apart uh, retail lending. What is what is that when we talk about retail lending? What is lower middle market banking and middle market banking in, in terms of the uh, different solutions that are out there? You want to you want to rip it from the top on those? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, retail lending, you know, is also commercial banking. So if you're dealing with your banker in the space and say, you know, commercial banking, um, there's a vice president and they'll have different 
you know, titles out there, business development in the commercial lending. You know, those are that's a division within the bank, depending on institution. It's typically going to be, you know, transactions or loan sizes below, you know, three million or so. Um, and that's typically going to be revenues of companies sub $10 million, uh, usually closer to $5 million. And that's retail lending. Um, you know, that's, you know, you reaching out to your local business banker. Uh, that business banker may be working with a practice finance banker, depending on the institution, if they have a practice finance comp- division. Um, and that's still, again, your, um, you know, traditional, you know, lending model. So when we say the words traditional lending, retail lending, commercial banking, that's, you know, all typically transaction sizes less than three to $5 million. You know, when you get past you know, about $5 million, um, and banks don't define it this way, <clears throat> you know, we look at it, um, you know, it's typically for us is lower middle market. Um, lower middle market in the equity space is going to be where our debt space is, which is typically around a million dollars in EBITDA, uh, 750 in EBITDA. You start to see institutions, you know, start leveraging around $5 million to roughly around $20, $25 million. And that's going to be your lower middle market space. Um, and then from there, you, you start to enter into middle market lending. Uh, we're starting to see significant transactions on that side, which is essentially check sizes, of mi- minimum check sizes of about 15 or $20 million. Some middle market institutions will go downstream into the lower middle market space just to get into a relationship early on. And depending on the institution, they'll provide you know, facilities up to $50 million, $100 million, uh, $250 million, um, you know, we're, we're working on a transaction right now where the you know, some of the institutions we've had conversations with, their minimum deployment capital is roughly around $50 million, where some institutions are cap on lending without having to bring in a syndication partner is going to be around 50 So it's, it's really unique when you're having these calls for making sure when we're sourcing for the clients, you know, how you know, institutions define their capital positions and what their limits are. But the, the short end is, you know, if, if you're looking to, uh, you know, grow and not are not ready for an equity transaction, and there's definitely a lot of positives to an equity transactions, you know, which we can talk about, uh, you know, on an M&A podcast. But if you're not looking for a, a capital event right now and ready to have a financial partner in the business, um, then, you know, finding an, a, a debt partner and if you're disciplined and, and have the accountability behind it. Um, and it, you know, you can get to 10, 15, 25 million in EBITDA, have lending exposures of 20, 50, 100 million dollars. So I think uh, you know, when clients come visit us on our discovery days, you know, or even our consulting clients, you know, my statements, you know, fairly straight, like, you know, getting you getting you in debt is not going to be an issue for us. You know, what I think we want to do is be more responsible uh, in the facility that we you know get you there. And then more importantly, after we've gotten you that facility, you know, how are we making sure that that relationship is productive uh, and continues to grow, right, in that process? Um, and it's uh, equitable for both sides. I mean, you're going to spend significant dollars into getting to a middle market transaction. You have to go through a quality of earnings or reviewed financial statements or have audited financial statements, um, significant legal costs, uh, you know, transactions that might be 50 to $75 million in debt structures, the closing cost on some of these debt deals are going to be same as an M&A deal. Um, so I think it's important to understand that if you're going to 
invest that much energy, invest that much financial capital. Um, yeah, you don't have to go to an equity platform or go to a DSO platform if, you, if you're not ready yet. Um, if you're ready, we're obviously going to help you. But I think um, there's definitely a significant amount of debt capital available um, if you're not ready for a capital event or an equity event. Yeah, I think um, what you just talked through there really uh, for the audience is probably going to recalibrate expectations. And it, and it, you kind of think about that two different ways, or at least I think about that two different ways. So we hear um, you know, constantly from people that, especially those that we're working with in a consulting relationship, you know, they say something to the effect of, you know, I want to, I want to build a business uh, and exit it for a twenty million dollar transaction or something like that. And you know, when you start working through the the math behind it, and you and you realize that if that's the amount they want to put in the bank, then there's some amount of taxes and some amount of debt. So the the transaction size is probably about you know twofold uh, what they're gonna what they're going to put in their bank. And then, then you start thinking about, well, okay, what does that mean from an EBITDA volume standpoint? And it probably means that it's a four to $5 million EBITDA business. And, and that's a large group practice, you know, that that's, that's a significant business. So people tend to think about EBITDA and an exit from a multiple and a transaction standpoint. What they don't necessarily think about is, how much debt am I going to have to draw upon to get there? You know, and that's a, a very real component of the growth strategy. So starting to think differently in terms of uh, commercial banking or retail lending uh, in into a lower middle market mindset bucket or a middle market mindset bucket in, in terms of that relationship to access you know, twenty million dollars worth of of loan exposure, um, and and really have the 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 growth vehicle, the credit facility in place to execute that strategy, is really critically important, and and it's a significant part of the growth strategy that I think people, I don't, it's just not top of mind, or or they don't, they kind of leave it as an afterthought, like it'll always be there, or they're just going to work with a bunch of different banks to get it done, and that's that's a terrible approach to that. It should be um, a, a central point in terms of the decision-making to facilitate the growth strategy. The other piece that you mentioned is that there are a lot of people out there that are, are really interested in building bigger businesses, and they're not exploring an exit, or at least not right now. And some of the transactions that we're working on um, in terms of these recaps are you know, 20 to 25 million and some north of 50 million, like you referenced. And, and those are already big businesses with big debt placement um, uh, offerings in, in place. And I, I think that, you know, if that recalibrates some of the expectations of the people in the audience to think about how debt could potentially be almost an unlimited resource for them. Now that opens up an entirely different growth path for them. And, and I think this is every bit as much as, you know, it being factional, fact, uh, factual, excuse me, and defining the terms and terminology. There's also this mindset shift in, in the audience that I hope we're able to achieve with an episode like this. So it's, it's super compelling and, and really, uh, really interesting. So, you know, while we're, 
on the the subject of um, comparing and contrasting and, and defining terms and terminology and all that kind of fun stuff, let's dig into that guidance line and credit facility piece of the equation. Um, and then we'll talk about debt recapitalization after that. But you want to take guidance line and credit facility? Sure. So I think uh, <clears throat> depending on institution, you know, they'll use this language of, of hey, we'll provide you a guidance facility or a credit facility. They might be calling it a non-revolver. There's different terms that are used out there. And within that, there's two different types of facilities. One is a committed capital, one is an uncommitted capital. Um, some institutions don't offer committed capital. Some institutions do offer committed capital. Um, so, so let's kind of break down just more of a definition. Um, uh, guidance lines and credit facilities, they're not like your home equity line of credit you know, where you have 100000 or $500,000 in equity, you went to the bank and said, I want a home equity line of credit, and they give you a checkbook or you can draw on it as you see fit. Um, in the business world, they call it business lines of credit. And depending on the size of your business, that business line of credit could be $500,000, million, or $2 million. But that's a business line of credit. And can you use that, depending on the size of your business, to make acquisition decisions or de novo decisions? Sure, you can. Uh, but for most of our audience members that are not, you know, have businesses revenue of 40 to $50 million with a $2 million facility. You know, when you're looking for a guidance line or credit facility, you're looking for a lending partner that is willing to grow with you. And you're looking for something that says, okay, if my business performs to w uh, the way it's supposed to do, will you continue to lend to me? And what does that look like in our lending relationship? So in a, <clears throat> in a uncommitted line, a lending institution will say, you know, Perrin, um, you know, your current exposure with us is $4 million, $5 million. You know, as long as your business has a debt service coverage ratio of 1.35, as long as your financial covenants are in line, as long as uh, your fixed charge coverage ratio is a 115120, and they'll use these languages in the disclosure document. They'll say, we will give you a, a guidance facility, which is uncommitted. Or a credit facility of two million, five million dollars, depending on whatever we've negotiated at Polaris, right? So that's going to be part of this the process that we work through, and um, that is essentially a guidance and credit facility that is uncommitted. The bank is not committed to lending you that, but they're giving you a guidance and saying, if you do that, we're going to lend to you. Okay, and when I when when I use the word a committed facility, in in that specific context, the bank's actually having to pull dollars out and commit to you. I hear too often from bankers in the market, we have allocated $500 million to grow dental. Uh, dental. We have allocated some substantial dollars to this, this business vertical. And although I appreciate that, that statement because they might sit in a conference call where an executive vice president of a bank or CEO of a bank said, okay, we want to grow the dental business or the healthcare lending portfolio business by $500 million, you know, that's not committing to a client. That's a business executive saying, this is where we want to grow our asset pool. And what we're looking for is that same bank to say, great, I understand you have a $500 million committed to growing in dental or healthcare in general and Durham plastics, you know, orthopedics. You know, we want to have our client get a $3 million, $5 million, $10 million committed facility. It means 
out of that $500 million pool, they are saying Dr. Desports has a $5 million facility committed to him. Now, whenever a bank gives you that, the word being committed capital, it costs the bank money. That means the banks put that $5 million allocated to you. They cannot lend it to someone else. And that's a, there's a cost of capital. And that typically will run anywhere from you know, 15, 20 basis points, depending on the institution, to all the way to 100 basis points annually. Annually. So let's, let's just really break it down. So if you had a $10 million facility, committed facility with, the, with an institution, that the cost structure could be on the lower end, $15,000 per year, just to have that facility tied to you, all the way to $100,000 per year. So this is getting a committed facility is actually a pretty cool thing, depending on the business you, you're in. But that once they commit those dollars to you, you know, they're, they're, you're going to be paying an annual fee for the bank to allocate that dollar. Most of our clients, you don't need a committed capital need that guidance facility. So I think we kind of show the pros and cons to our, our clients. Most of the committed capital institutions tend to be not in the lower middle market space. Some are, but more are in the true middle market space. So absolutely, that's available to you. We can, you know, we can source that kind of structure for you. Uh, but in, in definition of you know, guidance line, credit facility, committed capital, uncommitted, you know, essentially it's a bank's you know, uh, commitment to you. Uh, and I don't want to use the word loosely here. But they're going to work with you as long as you meet those covenants and continue to grow with you. And what this allows all of our audience members to do is when they're competing upstream with a bigger DSO and the bigger DSO is saying, hey, we can close that transaction in, in 90 days or 120 days because we're you know, uh, private equity backed and we have unlimited capital. And then the downstream doctor that is buying their first practice that the bank might be saying, I can close in 60 to 90 days. And you know, one could argue, would, they, would or would they not get the financing? Um, you are right in the middle. You're that doctor group that can come in and close at the speed of a private equity-backed DSO um, and still be doctor-owned, right? So that's, that's, there's a value proposition there that you can have you know, with the doctor that's looking to find an exit or find a joint venture partner. You can be that person um, in, in the market. Fantastic uh, overview there. And I think that again, is, is a mindset shift for a lot of our audience in terms of probably the banking relationships that they're accustomed to from retail banks or commercial banks uh, and, and the way we think about that differently um, uh, in terms of uh, at an enterprise level. You know, I think the other, the other thing that we've, we've touched on, I think, in previous podcasts, and, and we talk about this a lot, is that, you know, somebody... Uh, in our audience has a, an existing relationship uh, with a bank uh, and they've got a relationship manager that takes them out to dinner, plays golf with them or something like that, you know, periodically and everything. And so they hear a podcast like ours and we're talking about larger levels of, of debt fund commitments and growth strategy and all that. And, and they say, wow, I wonder if my bank offers that. And they go to their relationship manager and they say, I was listening to this podcast and they're talking about um, you know, the ability to draw upon five, 20, $50 million in terms of, um, you know, lending potential 
you know, am I good with y'all? Am I, am I good with my current bank? And they, and of course the relationship manager is going to say, absolutely. We're a multi-billion dollar bank. We, we've got more money than you could ever spend. And they pay a lot of lip service to it, um, which is what they do in a relationship capacity. That being said, you, the audience has heard us talk about the fact that relationship managers don't make the lending decisions. <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing for the relationship manager to verbalize what the uh, the doctor wants to hear, but it's something totally different to get a term sheet in writing that defines the relationship and the structure of it moving forward. Because whether it's committed or uncommitted, that term sheet um validates the bank's position and and overall commitment moving the relationship forward. So I don't know if you want to talk just a little bit about kind of that process or about what we try to secure on behalf of our clients in terms of term sheets, but it is a a significantly more formal process than a relationship manager just kind of spouting off the cuff saying, hey doc, you're good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So yeah, so we, when we go through the process, I'll kind of run through the lower middle market and middle market because we're starting to see a, a lot more transactional activity in the thirty to seventy million dollar space, uh, either from you know uh, family offices or even going downstream to larger doctor owned groups uh, that are coming to us and, and saying, "Hey, I'm not ready for a capital event." <clears throat> so when we run a process, um, and I say the word process because. We, uh, it's it's going to multiple institutions, finding the best deal for the client. It's a similar process we run on our M&A side, which is go to a, a broad uh, bucket of potential partners or buyers in the space and find the right fit for the client. Um, so as far as um, the process goes, when a client comes on board and says, okay, here's my, my practice, here's my vision, and we're, we're doing a full review of where their business is today and their business plan. And a matter of fact, every client that works with us on a capital raise will need to have a business plan. We'll provide you a template. We'll walk you through that template. We'll allow you to think through and give you things to think about. But a business plan is, is essential for the relationship between the client and us at Polaris, and then our ability at Polaris to find the right partner based on the client's vision. So we spend a lot of time understanding our client's goals and making sure the partner is, is the right partner. Uh, secondarily, you know, when a client engages us, we're doing a full financial analysis in the business. Um, so we're understanding what the, the revenues are. We're actually doing um, a financial testing as far as fixed charge coverage ratio, funded at the EBITDA. You know, we're we're kind of you know looking at the business and understanding the economics of the business, um, and lining that up with the business plan the client may have. So that is fundamental into every one of our process transactions, and that's in the lower middle market or the middle market space. Um, so, and that, that's, you know, lower market market is about 20, 25 million. Um, as far as negotiating a term sheet, you know, we're, we're, our goal is to look at the existing exposure of the client, look at the lendable uh, options that are available and go to the client and say, okay, we, we think we can get you $2 million, $3 million, $4 million. Here's the pros and cons at each level of, of, of lending or with each institution. And here's what the opportunity looks like for you as far as potential covenants. And we go out there, have the conversations with the institutions, uh, tell the story of our client, say, here's what the client's looking to do. And then more importantly, because you know uh, we have a lot of bankers here at Polaris, 
from credit experience, you know, from risk risk models, we're able to have a much more granular conversation with these banks and and just make sure we're kind of working through the fluff, which is, you know, we're, we're not looking to be sugar-coated on things of we want to be a lifetime partner and want to work with the client. We want to know what that relationship looks like and have it defined up front. And that dialogue, I think, is very productive for the bank because, you know, the, the bank's looking to say, okay, what is a client looking for? Let's make sure we're the right fit. Um, so we work through that process, you know, are able to work come down to, you know, one to three institutions from 10 to 15 plus different institutions, and then are able to present to that client and say, here's institution one, institution two, institution three, um, and here's why they make sense and pros and cons of each. And in that term sheet, we've negotiated the initial loan amount, initial credit facility or guidance facility, the uh, the pricing structure. Again, uh, when, I, when we start to talk about lower middle market or middle market, um, I, I always tell people, it's, like, it's not about the price. We want the price to be relative, but it's really about the structure. That's the covenants. That's more important than the price. Even if you're paying an extra quarter percent, an extra half a percent, extra percent uh, in interest rate, if the facility allows you to more than offset that cost of capital, then we just let's have that conversation. Um, you know, we're able to negotiate covenants in the transaction. You know, such as simple as, is it going to be quarterly internally prepared or quarterly CPA prepared? Are we going to gap-based financials? Most of our clients are going to be gap-based financials. Uh, gap being uh, generally accepted accounting principles, which is accrual-based financial statements. Um, some of our, some our clients are going to go to audited financial statements. What is a reporting requirement? Uh, how often does a line renew? Is it using uh, TTM, which is trailing 12 months, or is it using calendar year tax returns? Uh, would it use trailing 12 months information if we could get a CPA-prepared financial statement? Or would it be every six months, every 90 days, every year? So these are all the conversations we're having in the loan covenant structure in our lower middle market space. We're having the same conversations in the middle market space. Um, those transactions seem to be a little bit more bigger picture. Um, you know, we do talk about things like a quality of earnings in that space or having a third-party CPA firm look at the financials. Again, these companies are deploying 25 to 100, $150 million into a company. They really want to make sure they have their financials uh, correct. Uh, the difference in the middle market space that we're doing, it looks almost identical to our M&A process. And the fact that we actually create a pitch book. Um, and, uh, and those pitch books, depending on the size of the company, can be anywhere from 25, 30 pages. And all the way right now, we are, we're working on this uh, in excess of 130 pages. Um, and a pitch book is essentially it's a PowerPoint uh, presentation that we convert to a, a PDF that tells the story of the, the leadership the organization in itself, what the organization has historically accomplished, and then uh, goes through the financial performance of the business, goes through payer mix. Anything we'd be looking at an M&A, we go through the pitch book process similarly on a debt side. And then we go practice by practice and tell the story of each practice. So that this process on the middle market side typically takes us about nine months. It's actually a very uh, in-depth process to, to make sure we get the right uh, opportunity for the client. Again, I told you earlier in the podcast, these middle market transactions, some of these closing fees uh, are similar to the M&A side. And these, these clients do not want to bring on the next equity partner. We have some family offices that would say, you know, we're not ready to exit the deal. We just want a lending partner in that transaction. On the lower middle market side, that process roughly takes us about 90 to 120 days, might be about 150 days, depending on the deal. 
uh, size. And if we need a QV or not, uh, don't need a QV. Um, but, but we're, again, trying to go through all the detailed covenants in the deal, uh, making sure, one, more importantly, our experience is, is a reasonable to go and, and go to that client with that. And so sometimes we don't even go with a term sheet to a client if an institution's not being reasonable so we can't back and we'll say, hey, we went to this bank, their term sheet wasn't good, um, you know, and, and we'll just exit that process, you know, with that institution. But we're very detailed as far as negotiating um, the, the covenants and the structure. So I think the biggest value added in our process is negotiating the structure and the term sheets, not the pricing. Yeah, yeah, very well, uh, very well articulated there, DeWalker. I, I think let's let's put a bow on this episode with uh, one um, one last aspect of it, and and it centers around um, what we call debt recapitalization. You know, one of the questions we get uh, when we a- approach this type of a scenario with a client, uh, they inevitably ask. Uh, am I going to have to to change uh, all of my banking relationships, meaning my deposit accounts, and and uh, you know make make that wholesale shift, um, and and part and parcel of uh, this debt recapitalization process is changing the relationship in its entirety and streamlining everything. So, do you want to you want to take those two aspects of it and and kind of talk through what debt recapitalization is and and then uh, the changes in the relationship? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, whenever somebody's transitioning or looking for another lender, one of their biggest, you know, challenges is always going to be that heavy lift of, you know, moving their entire, you know, lending relationship, looking for payoff statements, going to, through that awkward conversation with their current institution, like, hey, you know, it's not you, it's me uh, process and, and, and transitioning from that relationship. Um, I think the bigger lift for a lot of our clients beyond that initial refinance is also the depository transaction that may or may not be uh, applicable. Now, in the middle market space, we work with bank and non-bank lenders. So in the middle market space, you may not have to transition your banking relationship. As a matter of fact, a lot of the non-bank lenders we work with, uh, they're non-bank lenders. They're not a non-bank bank. Um, So they're looking for the transaction just on the lending side. Hence, the cost of capital is going to be a little bit higher than a bank side, uh, but yet flexible on that side. So as far as you know, re- recapitalization, the short answer is unless you want to go to subordinated debt, which we'll talk about in, in future podcasts, um, and, and there's pros and cons to subordinated debt, yes, you're going to be refinancing, recapitalizing your current lender. Um, and I think I said in the uh, previous podcast, I think people need to seriously evaluate their current relationship in 2022 uh, because cost of capital is moving upwards in 22, 23, 24, 25. I think uh, the Federal Reserve has made an indication that they're going to be increasing cost of, cost of funds. And that's going to have a trickle-down effect with all the banks, uh, different uh, treasury indexes and yields will be going up. And all of that goes back to the consumer in the consumer finance space, which is credit card financing, auto financing, mortgage financing. But it's also going to impact the commercial lending space. It's going to impact the private equity market. Their cost of capital will be going up over the next uh, two to four years um, as the federal reserves make these changes and the, uh, the the yields are improving. So short answer is yes. I mean, you're going to have to be working through that process to refinance it. You know, we work with our clients to kind of you know how do you have that conversation? Uh, it's it's not you, it's me. Kind of a conversation to move forward because. Frankly, a lot of our clients, by the time they go through that process, are kind of frustrated with their current institution. 
and want to move towards an institution that can help them grow. Um, lastly, you know, going with the cost of capital and timing. If you're not with a right lender today, or if it's there's small speed bumps today, those are going to become big speed bumps in the future. So um, I think I said in the last podcast, you know, would you rather refinance your entire relationship in 2022, where the cost of capital is primarily 30 basis points, 50 basis points higher than in 2020? Or would you rather refinance in 2023, 2024, because you're frustrated with the current lending relationship? And that could be 100, 150 basis points higher than where we are today. Um, so at, at some point, you're going to probably refinance. For, you're starting to see red flags now. Excellent point to conclude, really, that you know, in the increasing rate environment that we inevitably find ourselves in the coming months, the banking relationship and committed source of, of funding really needs to be top of mind, front and center with our audience. For those that are are intending to pursue um, their growth strategy over the next couple of years. Um, it's prudent to evaluate this now and, and get the right relationship in place that you can grow with uh, and not just have to reevaluate it every single time you decide to buy or build another practice. So this has been a, a longer episode than normal, but I, we knew it was going to be a lot of detail in it. And, and hopefully um, everybody has, has found a lot of education, a lot of value in it. If you do have questions about any of these topics, you can send your questions directly to me or to Walker. Uh, my email address is obviously perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, at polarishealthcarepartners.com. And DeWalker is DeWalker, D-I-W-A-K-A-R, at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Well, I think you'll agree that that was a tour de force around uh, comparing and contrasting different uh, banks and lending institutions at different levels. And DeWalker gave us a ton of information to think about, and and hopefully a lot of that landed very well with all of you in the audience um, as you think about your banking relationship um, against your growth prospects in the coming year or, or over the next year and the coming years for sure. Um, he always is such a, a wealth of information. I really appreciate the time that he gives us on the uh, the podcast because I know that y'all find it to be very impactful and, and very educational. And that's frankly what we're trying to to create here at Polaris is a lot of different educational vehicles for you to to play a game at a higher level. Um, you, uh, many of you have wonderful opportunities at hand to really grow and dominate your local marketplace, um, regardless of what the competition. Uh, seems to be doing. And, and we want to help you create success for yourself and your families and your partners and everything. Um, along that same lines, before we wrap up the show, I had gotten some questions around our educational offering um, and, and sort of what all we're doing. And I want to just take a quick second to, to sort of give you a framework that we think about uh, education and content. Obviously, we do podcasts. Uh, we're doing some uh, a monthly webinar now on a bunch of different topics. There's a lot of free content that, that's out there that we try to share, and we try to make it impactful and, and granular and detail-oriented, not just a lot of fluff. And And I get that feedback from y'all a lot. So there's the, the free content um, that you can access. Uh, and then we have different educational offerings 
that we're rolling out this year and they're they're structured differently and they're uh, to be applied differently the pinnacle event in florida in uh, march 30th through april 1st um, we're calling scaling from clinician to ceo that's a larger format event 50 to 75 people uh, it's a wider ranging survey of, of content there's going to be legal structures debt structures equity structures uh, growth prospects, buyer versus build, um, associate equity, um, operating agreement considerations from a legal structure standpoint. There's a lot that's going to happen in those two days together. And it's intended to be a broader survey um, uh, where people can can find different impacts in their business at different points in time. That being said, the Pinnacle event uh, and the other ones that we'll be doing this year that are that are wider ranging, larger format, those pinnacle events are significantly different than the master classes. Um, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback on our master classes. The master class series is going to be a very narrow topic at a very, very deep level in a in a much smaller format, probably class size of about ten. And the theory behind this is that it's a super intense environment. People come to learn about a specific aspect and really create some level of mastery around it and how it impacts their business. So, for example, we've done mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations. For those that are growing through um, acquiring other businesses, you, we've said you don't want to have one tool in your toolbox. You need to think about it more for, as if you were the director of business development for your organization. So we go very deep into that um, from a process standpoint, from an application standpoint, and from a legal structure standpoint. And that is a two-day class around mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations. Very narrow subject matter incredibly deep and incredibly granular in a very uh, intense environment. Then the other one we're going to be doing in March is around de novo execution. Um, as you've heard me say before, we're big fans of the de novo approach for culture purposes and, and otherwise. And de novo execution is going to be exactly what it says it is. It's going to be oriented at those growing their business through cold starts. Uh, we want to find the right location for the next location. Uh, we want to uh, understand how to negotiate with a landlord, how to negotiate with a contractor, how to pre-market ahead of time, uh, what creating equity on balance sheet and a net equity break-even point is um, from a financial modeling standpoint. There is a lot to de novo that people leave to chance. And this is a class oriented at leaving nothing to chance. So again, very narrow subject matter very deep, very granular, uh, with some uh, industry experts to supplement the content that we'll be sharing. The third class that'll happen, and it probably will be in May, is going to be around C-suite financial reporting um, uh, and, and analysis. Um, that is everything around DSO level reporting, uh, line of sight reporting, uh, comparable invariance, um, you know, how to interpret financial statements, uh, what are the key KPIs and data to be uh, focused on and why. This is a, a much, uh, this is like a, a CFO class for the, the business founder, if you will. Uh, and again, bringing in some industry experts and resources in terms of how we think about that and, and how to uh, have a better grasp on the financial performance of your organization. So, 
the master classes, I kind of rattle those off because they're significantly different than the pinnacle events. And depending on what your personal education needs are at this point in your journey, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to access um, from any of those offerings. Uh, and it goes without saying that we still offer our same discovery days that we've been doing um, for well over a year now. And, and that is the one-on-one -on -one session with the client. That's a, a broad survey of topics, but it's uh, semi-tailored to the, to the needs of the client on a one-on-one -on -one basis for the entire day. So, you know, hopefully we have something out there um, that, uh, you know, fits your needs and also where you are in your growth journey. We're, we're really doubling down on our education content for our audience and we want to make it impactful and, it, and we want to bring all of the enterprise level resources that a, a private equity backed group would have to you the doctor founded and debt funded space to build and operate a better business with a greater degree of confidence so hopefully you'll join us at some point this year for any number of those classes um and and hopefully your experience with them will be equally as good as the people who come before you so Today was uh, a big episode. It was a lot, and I hope you got a lot out of it, and I hope you had a little bit of fun doing it. Um, if you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions, feel free to submit them to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And of course, if you want to find out more about us, you can do so on our website, www.PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.